Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to another episode of IRC Book Club. I've don't, no don't, don't try and mention what episode number it is. Well, <laughs> I've just lost count, mate. I've just lost count. How are you, Pricey? Uh, oh, good, thanks. Yeah? Good weekend? I've been silicone in my bathroom. Rock well, and roll. As we were just discussing before we went on air, you have to put the water in the bath first. Correct, correct, yeah. correct. So we are on a new book. We are. Amp up your sales. I'm glad there's a pop filter on the uh, microphone here. By Andy Paul, with a foreword by Anthony Iano Arino. Um, have you got on with this one? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to save my summary for the last show, but I have read it all. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I, let's go through. Let, let, I, mean, let's go, let, I mean, let's go through it. Let's begin. I so mean, you're going to read the foreword. Because you know sure. uh, in time-honoured fashion. I don't see there's much point, but I'll tell you, I'm going to give you a summary of this book before we read it. So for people who are reading, they know what's going on. This, and I saw you look then, this book is basically like a long list of different things. If you did each, and if you did each one, you'd marginally improve your selling game with the overall plan of if you did them all, you'd hugely improve your selling game. That's the basic premise of his book, isn't it? Yes, I think that's fair. It's things you can do to up your game. Yeah. If you do one of them, it's a bit better. Do all of them, you'd be a lot better. What's interesting is, the book that we read about from the hostage negotiator, what was that called? Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. Never Split the Difference. I have used one of his things over and over and over again since I read it. Which was which that? Which is, I said, hey, Jonathan, you don't seem to have come back to me. Shall we just not? Shall, shall we just rule through this project now? That has been the best thing I took. So that my point a is, killer, a killer it has actually, yeah. So I've sort of read this book hoping to get something of similar Listen, uh, you know, use. if there's a killer effect in any given book... It's worth reading the rest of the rubbish. If there's what correct. Is, is nine hours worth of your time worth one killer tip? Correct, I agree completely. Definitely. Go on, talk about the forward and then so, let's, so the opening forward of the book, it's not what you sell, it's how you sell. So I wrote here on the opening line of the book, I don't agree. Um, and I don't agree because I think you and I live in a universe where a lot of people are successful because of what they sell. A lot of product guys are. Yeah, a lot of product guys are in particular. Um, and even a lot of services guys are that in as much as they're in the right environment with the right... Well, they sell their company. So effectively, yeah. they productize their sale by selling their company is what they do. Yeah, and I get it. You know, I know the markets are more crowded, but he said... It, he says here, it matters more how you sell than what you sell. You're empowered to act in a way that provides you with a massive competitive advantage. And, and it's true, but it's like I say, I only partially agree. And I do see a lot of people where they are successful because actually, it's going to sound harsh, but, uh, you know. Um, They're an effective cog in a wheel. The, the, but, but that's a slightly different debate to this. Come on, let's yeah, get through the book. Absolutely. we on the first page. And then he says, creating competitive advantage means creating more value than your competitors do. Um and I, I and I will come back to that. This is the forward by Anthony Anarino. And I wrote, is that not the job of the company to an extent? Possibly. 
but we'll, we will get there. And then we're into the, into the introduction. I underlined the first line, actually. <laughs> Sales is one of the few pro professions where nearly everyone is searching for the edge that will, get, that will make him or her better. I can Why? tell you now, as a sales recruiter for 19 years, this statement of where nearly everyone is searching for the edge that will make them better, he should change that for where occasionally people and a handful thereof. Where, where a few top performers are searching for the edge that will make them better. I think there's better. loads of salespeople out there that couldn't care less about being better. I couldn't agree more. I totally agree. The, you, and as we've often said before, you know, you and I are... Uh, we spend the book club's different because people that read it are in selling. So they're sort of going Yes, to our audience is, we're, we're preaching to the converted, aren't we, a little bit. But a lot of the people that you and I come across where you think, he's not doing too well. It's because he hasn't read a sales book in 20 years. Correct, because they, they, they pay no attention to the sharpening of their saw. Correct. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more, mate. Couldn't agree more. So I totally I highlighted the same bit and disagreed with it. Um, and again, he's written here, in that sense, salespeople are like professional athletes whose career and incomes depend on achieving and maintaining a level of uncommon excellence. He's right about that. He is. And do you know what? You and I do meet people who are true sales athletes and you can spot them a mile off and you think, oh, yeah, you're a, prop you're a proper athlete. You And I'll tell you what's really interesting was recently we've done this campaign. Um, it was quite a big email campaign on a specific project. And a lot of it was going to... Um, people's work email addresses, which, you know, some people would say is a little bit of sharp practice and others seem to not give well, up. Well, not really. It. My work email address seems inundated with things for me to buy. Correct, yeah. Um, and a couple of people came back to me and told me I was unprofessional. Now- but The top guys didn't. No, of course not. But you do get people telling you you're unprofessional. And I, I think that it's a much bigger conversation, maybe one we'll have on another day on the show about- being a professional salesperson, what that really means to be a pro, i.e. doing it for money. Um, and that that's, you know, that's a big bugbear for me, Mike. It is. Come on then. Anyway, this week, because we're going to end up spending all day on the first page. Yeah. How can you, so what he's talking, one of the comments he makes, it's quite interesting in the intro, is he talks about breaking through the noise to retain the attention of busy and distracted customers. And I do think that is really key in a lot of sales scenarios, particularly, you know, you deal with a lot of companies and a lot of candidates where they sell in very crowded sales environments, don't they? Oh, of course, yeah. Where, a lot of the sales environments are crowded. There's hardly any that aren't. Well, if there's money in it, it becomes crowded. Unless, quickly. Uh, yes, ra it becomes rapidly crowded if there's enough. It, the, as soon as people realise there's cash, it doesn't take long for people to rumble it, does it? Um, so he talks about the whole book revolves around three main themes, simplifying your selling, maximizing the value of your selling and amplifying your sales responsiveness. And then part one is simplifying your selling. So today we're going to cover, there's six, parts eight, one and there's two, eight parts in this book. Four weeks, we're doing parts one and two. And then we've got the author on the show. Good. So chapter one, what is selling? So how have you got on with this chapter? I, I, I mean, of all the people to choose, he chose Jeff Bezos. Oh, go on, just put some context on that. So, so, so chapter one, title, what is selling? It says, the most precise definition of selling I've ever seen is from Jeff Bezos, Amazon's founder and CEO. In an interview with the Harvard Business Review, Bezos said, we don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help customers make a purchase decision. Now, I'll tell you my issue with that is that this book and what this man does is he trains B2B sales teams. Yeah. So why is he quoted a B2C sales guy? Yeah, I, I didn't just read like it, and thought, it either. What 
I mean, clearly, Jeff Bezos is going to be right. Let's, get, let's be 100%. Yeah, he's the richest man on earth. And for a reason. So he's, well, he's quotable by... Well, in the by... B2B selling environment, we've quoted a B2C sales guy who's the CEO. And I don't think it's a particularly useful quote for the purposes of the book. No. 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 Okay. And it... But it's a really tough question to answer that because you could ask that question. We ask it when we interview people for us, what is selling? Everybody has a different definition. If anybody actually liked or commented this show ever, irrespective of how many people seem to view it, they should comment with, my definition of selling is, and I guarantee every single one of them will be different. Correct. Mine and yours will be different. Yep, absolutely. Let's take Andy's. It is, at its most fundamental level, selling is simply an exchange of information between the buyer and you, the seller. Selling is the process by which customers provide you with the information about their requirements, and in return, you provide them the necessary and relevant information about your key products and services that enables them to make a buying decision. What do you think to that, Mike? Well, you know what I put? I've put no, I've put no point as you use the word influence. Yeah, that's that's been a... Uh, I mean, as we sit here today... All the American authors don't seem to like the word influence. Well, we know it's unfashionable, isn't it? Yeah, well, this book's this book must be four or five years old. I would have thought. I don't but know. It's, but it's it's in the last decade the the zeitgeist of the selling community is it's deeply unfashionable to talk about influence, persuasion. Because uh, what's annoys me about control. it is on the next page, he he has a brilliant comment. What am I doing right now that is going to get me closer to an order? Where does it say that? That's there. a great thing to say. There. Yep. That's a brilliant. What am I doing right now? That's getting me closer to an order. Well, no, he but he's actually put that's out of context. He's he's oh, almost, I know it's out of context. Yeah. Standard question salespeople are told to ask themselves is what am I doing right now that is getting me closer to an order? On the surface, that seems like a good question to ask. It puts the focus on now and places priority on action. Unfortunately, it's completely backward. I don't think it is. I think that's the best question. One of the best questions. It has you the can focus ask. on the order rather than on the customer. One is the cart, the other is the horse. And I get it, you know. And it's some, uh, you and I have to be careful because I don't want to come across as some guy who doesn't care about his customers because I care incredibly deeply. It's and very different you, for us though, isn't you, it? We've been setting the gear up just now. And one of the first things you you said when you've walked through the door is, mate, I feel so sorry for so-and-so. I'm gutted about it. I can't work out how to help him. Well, I'm going to work out how to help him. But do you know but, what he pays me for? He pays me to sell to the candidates that want to go and work there. Yes, he does. And, and what he also, those candidates pay me for, they don't pay me. Yeah. So to sell to him. I don't want our listeners to think that you and I don't love our customers because we do deeply, you know, literally the opening thing you've said to me, I've not seen you for three days, was I'm really worried about him. I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. Well, I'm meeting him tomorrow. Just yeah. trying to sort it out. So, because the guy's I don't got, have an answer. The guy's got a terrible business problem that you, you have personally taken human umbrage with to, to, to fix. You know, I know we care about our customers, but equally, I think we've got to be so careful with this whole... Oh, the customer first. <laughs> My experience, Mike, is a lot of the guys I meet who are there because they're on their way out with putting the customer first and not their target. Yes, completely agree. So chapter two, understanding your sale. Mind you, you've got a big red line. I can see it on your book <laughs> in our dungeon. I hope everybody likes the new set. Yes, the, the uh, IRC book club basement. Need to keep looking at the camera. Yeah. Understanding your selling process. And I think you- that's very important. Yeah, I do. I don't think he covers it particularly well. I like how the fact he talks about it rather than being a process as being a recipe. I did like that. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, and it is, you know, and it, it, what, where it does get really interesting is he talks about the importance of actually breaking down 
how you do what you do. And one of the things when I'm helping people prepare for interviews, I often say to people, you should take a case study of a deal that you won and explain how you went about doing it. A lot of people don't do it because they don't know how they did it. Correct. They're unconscious. They're so unconscious. They're either one of two things. Either they're just not conscious at all of how they do what they do, or they're so unconsciously competent that they can't bring back to mind how they did what they did. Interesting. He references David Allen, which for those of you watching, have we got David Allen? David Allen, the legend of getting things done. The GTD man himself will be coming on it the show. It might actually be a fight months. between Jonathan and I, because I hate that. And, I'm a, and GTD, I'm a GTD it. guy. Um, so yeah, it will be a fascinating one, but I think it will be fascinating after we've both reread it again. Yeah. Well, anyway, so getting back to this book that we're on right now. Yeah. Um, I, I do agree with you. I like his paradigm of selling being a recipe and doing it in an order. I yeah. Think that's, and I, I think that's very fair. And what he gives is a great example here of breaking a process into its much smaller component parts. I think that in and of itself, if as a tip, you know, you said the book is just a collection of tips that if you is, yeah. accepted each one and did it, would actually improve your game. That's a, uh, for me, I think that's a real game improver. I do agree, yeah. Next chapter is the balance, is balancing selling and buying. And he says, this is not a trick question. Are you selling or is your customer buying? Goes on a little bit. Then he says, understand the balance between the two is essential for every seller. Now, I do, I do agree with that. I, when, I, when I'm talking to clients or candidates, I always think to myself, is one person chasing the other more? Because I think if you're completely chasing one way or the other, it's not going to be a sale. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But like, all... like, so, so I had this candidate who I'm into with the guy I'm talking about, actually, when I walked through the door. <laughs> hadn't returned my call last week. Dropped to an email saying, listen, I'm not going to chase you. If you're interested in this client, give me a shout. If you're not, I don't hear from you. I'll tell the client you're not interested. Funnily enough, the candidate, emailed, candidate called me about 10 seconds later. Must have literally <laughs> yeah. got the email. I thought, right, he called me, said I'm not interested I, in I've, it. I've done one this morning where I've triggered the uh, good luck in staying in your own job work. Correct, yeah. So this guy called me and he went, I'm not interested in it. I said, no, that's fine. Why don't you just tell me? He went. I don't know, really. But the point is, I'm not going to chase that candidate. Because if I chase that candidate uphill and down Dale and then twist his arm to having another interview with the client, the client is happy for a moment, but then devastated when the guy turns it down later down the line. And it's also, all because Mike, I chased him too much. Yeah. I mean, also, the, there's, a, there's a moment, isn't there, sometimes with some campaigns where you sit there thinking, I'm just working too hard. Yes, well, that's what this guy's on about, and I agree yeah. with that. I'm just working too then, hard. Then he goes on and makes this other comment, which I completely disagree with, which, which is, is, a seller cannot control the customer's buying process. I wrote, don't agree. I, I, I wrote, don't agree. Why don't you agree? Well, what's the point of having salespeople? I'll tell you what's happening now with the SaaS software model. The SaaS software model has created a cadence with which people buy. All the stuff's out there in the internet, you get all your information, then you have a puppy dog sale, you demonstrate it, blah, blah, blah. But I just think the very best people, when I ask them and say, how did you win that deal? A big part of their component is they control the buying process. So you're telling me a lot of these public Correct. sector guys aren't controlling the tender process. They definitely are. I'm going to caveat that. The good ones are. Yes, the good ones. The, the, the good ones are aware of the points at which they can exert significant influence. So on the tell process. the client when to go to tender, they invite yeah. other people. They into write the tender. tender for the client. They do all they they know and it's awful, right? But the good ones are just a bit more Machiavellian. They're sharper and clever and they're sharper, but, but also they're cunning. they have a belief that they can affect the buyer's selling process. And that's my concern with the book is 
And with a lot of the books we've read on book club is there's just this denigration of the concept of being a cunning salesman. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. And it's not on. But I think there's a lot of stuff in this book. I, I do like, you know, quite a lot of the book. But some of the things he says... Because you can be cunning and care about your customer. Correct. He says, a seller cannot control the buy, customer's buying process. And then on the next page it says, the balance of power has shifted to the customer. I tell you now, if I had a new salesperson that I was training, I would definitely would not tell them either of those things. No, definitely what not. What a terrible belief to have. Oh, you can't control it. And the customer's got all the power. Yeah, can't good luck. Be true. Yeah, I, I just, I'm sorry. And maybe the, it's a paradigm shift too far. Maybe you and I are dinosaurs, mate. I don't know. But I don't know. But what every, you about? Every, every candidate that walks through my door that's a serious performer, they're control freaks. Yes. The serious performers, they just control stuff. They, control, they try and control me. They fail. But they try. Well, I've had a guy start a job <laughs> um, today called John, who started a job today. Good luck, John. Yeah. He, will, he listens to book club as well. He, and I've said it to him, is a control freak of epic proportion. Asks questions. So I'll say to him about this interview, I said, right, I'll send the formal confirmation for you, for you to meet this other guy. He went, no, I'd rather do it. <laughs> right, why? Yeah. He went, because I'd rather do it, Mike. It's my job. And I thought, well, fair enough. You asked me about one earlier, about a, a project I've been working on and been working on through the whole summer and the client and the candidate are negotiating package right now. I have no control over that because the candidate has completely taken control. And whilst it, and three weeks ago, I said to you, she is a top girl, this girl. She's taken control. She's just completely... She's not, been, she's not been rude. No, she rang me today to tell me how in control she was and exactly what she'd done. But she just is more confident in her controlling that deal than me. And I, I'm sort of, I said to her, I said, I just can't add any value here. You're sort of sorting it out. She went, yeah, no. Next worry. page, page 14. Each buying cycle moves at a pace that is all of its own. Whew. Let's uh, let's ring up. Let's ring up some VPs from some of the key enterprise software. Let's companies. ring up Vista Corporation. Yeah, let's ring up. <laughs> let's ring up some VPs and say it's okay because all buying cycles move at a pace that are all their own. Don't worry about the quarter cycles. Just move at the pace at their own pace. Nuts, isn't it? I think you. Well, anyway. Yeah. So we don't agree, but there are, and I do. But I did agree with some of his stuff. He, what he doesn't make enough of here is, for me, is he, st he should talk about the balance of power between the buyer and the seller in this chapter. Yes. But what he actually says is, yeah, yeah, the seller's just done for, the buyer's got all the power. Yeah. And then we're into the mechanics of decision-making in chapter four, <laughs> which he breaks down two different buyer types into satisfiers and maximizers. Quite like this, actually. I'm not necessarily saying I'll I tell you what it, I like. I thought it was interesting. I'll tell you what I did like about it. I like that he's creating a categorization of buying completely. types. Do I agree with it? No. Would I use it? Definitely not. I've got other models. Well, that's not a bad one. No. In the place of all others, that's not bad. If you took me a graduate salesman tomorrow and said, listen, here's a good start. Start of a 10. I'm not going to hit you with uh, understanding buying strategies uh, from an NLP perspective, but here's a thought. Satisfiers versus maximizers. That's a really... I really Did you like grade that. yourself to see what you are? Where's that? I'm a maximizer. I'm, I know a, I am. I'm a satisfier. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. Yeah. Think about every major procurement you and I make. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I thought I'm, it was interesting. I'm like the nth degree. But I thought degree. it was interesting that we fell into it. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy's right. The guy's right. So it's a, I think that's, and I thought that was really useful because um, everybody, I thought it's useful to a point. I, I wouldn't, want to think 
that a guy on a hundred or a lady on a hundred K basic salary, um, earning two hundred thousand pound a year, just had everybody split into two separate yes, camps. Yes, but in fairness, in fairness, to this author, he creates a buying type and then he says how to deal with them. Correct. Fair enough. That, I, I think, think that was that was fair enough. You know, we're we're nineteen pages in this. This has been useful, and it's. Do you know what? That's a layer on top of my thinking that I'll probably adopt. I that's prob- one of my. That's one of the one of my gets from the from the book. Um, and then he talks about how to help maximizers move quickly through buying process. What I call proactive transparency. If you have six competitors on a deal, create a complete unbiased competitive matrix featuring all six of their products as well as your own. Present it to the prospect. What do you think? I think you're sort of creating a rod for your own back. It's all right if you've got well, the best product. But what's funny though, Mike, is often, you know, <laughs> do you remember the geezer that looked like the Clarenough breast off? Yeah, I remember So let's him. just put some context The consultancy call went, I've got this sales guy, he's like the Clarenough breast off. And the candidate went, all right, I'll interview him. And then he hired him. <laughs> and he was a grumpy, oh, a grumpy, cantankerous old fella. Awful guy. But, but actually, he, he sold stuff. Actually, your honesty, your proactive transparency, placed that candidate in that job, and that candidate went on to make money for that company. Well, yeah, I remember the candidate asked you about the client. He said, "What are they like?" I said, "Not very good, really." But you know, they're a little reseller. They're a little reseller in the north of England. He went great. Yeah. I love that type. Yeah, absolutely. So you proactive. So I, I, I think you and I unconsciously often practice proactive transparency. Well, I, I, it's a slightly different because I think the I think the clients trust us to let them know what's walking through the door. Yeah, it's a bit like I've got a fellow at second interview today, um, and I compared him to another candidate the other week. And the client was laughing down the phone, saying, "Oh right, I'm really inspired now." And I said, "Well, yeah, but it's horses for the courses. He's a good bloke. He'll do the job. He is what he is. Yeah, he's, he is. If what you he don't is. want to meet him, don't bother. Yeah, he's, he, he's just not as inspiring as the other guy you met the other day." Um, but it's that proactive transparency, I think, that he, he's right. It does build. Do you think that's what he's referring to? Yes. Okay, fair enough. He's referring to the capacity of a salesman to walk in and say, listen, we're really good at that, 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 and that, but that bit we ain't so good at. Okay, fair enough. And actually to be comfortable to show it on the matrix and to, to be, for, for the client to think, do you know what, this guy's a straight shooter. And I think that is a powerful tool. Okay. When, when all the other sales guys in the process are starting again, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. I'll, I'll have that off you. Um, and then he talks about, be sure to identify your decision maker type early in your qualification. I, I would have liked him to have expanded a little bit more on how. Yeah, but he's writing short chapters though, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we've not quite really dug into yet that is a common theme throughout the book is there's this sub-theme throughout this book, which is all about if you answer your customers' questions, the person who quickly answers questions, that now I'm going to rephrase that. He's effectively saying, listen, your job is to answer questions. Yes, he is, yes. And we've kind of not quite picked up on that 21 pages. I think it goes on further. Further on down the line, I think he talks about responsiveness, doesn't he, later on in the book? Yes, about responding and answering questions. He does, yeah. Um, And I've put, at what point the salesperson thinks is, yeah, yeah, no, ignore that. Okay, chapter five. Are we already moved on to another chapter? I would have said so. We've got lots of Wowzers. chapters. Wowzers. Yeah, lots of chapters they're all short, punchy. Yeah, yeah. And this chapter is called The Ratio of Planning to Action. Okay, tell us about it. I can't remember it. It's that long ago. I read it, actually. I'm just reading my notes. So he says here, some sales managers will attempt to discourage independent thinking on your part. 
You need to actively resist this. So I remember writing about this. Um, and, and, and so what he basically was saying here is sales is a craft that rewards creativity. I like it storytelling, whether it's writing a novel or developing a screenplay. Yeah. He's right about all these points. And he's about saying that you as a salesperson need to be creative. You know, you don't, you shouldn't just follow what the internal marketing system says. I do, however, think that an employer, if they then go out and just try and hire independently creative, free-thinking people, it's not scalable. Struggle to hire people, I think. And it's not scalable. You know, people refer to a lot of the guys from the big software vendors as autonomous. Well, that is, yeah, that's in planning. Yeah. So if one of them leaves, they can just get another. Correct. They're hot swappable hard drives, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Now all the now all the companies with all the creative salespeople tend to be little companies. Well, why is that? Because they can't keep re- replacing their really creative ones. Yes. And you and I both know that from a growth perspective, the more talented and creative your sales team, actually the less scalable the business becomes. Yeah. And that, and, uh, and, and that was this. Then chapter six, he goes on about earning selling time. I like this. The, and this is on page 27. I really liked this chapter the, too. The currency the customer will use to purchase your selling time is her time. But strings are attached to the customer's investment. For her, ta- for her investment of time, she has to receive something of value from you in return that is equal to or precedes her perception of the value of her time. This means that in each instance, a customer invests in your selling time you have to provide in the form of information that will help you move the customer at least one step forward in a buying process. So basically saying, you're going to get some time off your client, give them more time back than they gave you, and you'll get invited back again. Yeah, what's and in I it? think that's 100% spot on there. Uh, um, Best thing I read in the book. Matt. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a time once I was making a, a call early in my career, and uh, one of the managers came up and said, it's great all this, but you, you, what's in it for them? Mm, yes, what, yes. What's the customer getting out of that conversation with you? And I was like, what do you mean? He's got, he's got, my, he's got my service, he's got my service. And he, and he just kept saying, what does the customer get from talking to you? Mm-hmm. And, so, it, and I think that is really and, pertinent. And this, and this chapter is, a, you know, one takeaway out of the book. I've read all the book. This is the best chapter. What, that whole point of what does the customer get out of every... Because and if and they he, get value for their time, they yes. will give you more of their time. Then make more value out of that time. Correct. They will give you all the time in the world. So I've got a chief exec, you know him. He's a man short on time. You can have a meeting with him in the last 20 minutes. Yep. But he's happy with that 20 minutes. Because he's getting value. Because I get an hour and a half's worth of stuff out of it. Because yeah, he's getting value out of his conversation. I drive. They've got an office on the South Coast. I drive to the South Coast to see him for 20 minutes. Because it's, it's worth doing it. It's a, the, the value of the exchange for both of you is so great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. And I think, again, if you said to me, you know, if we got a new starter tomorrow... And you said, okay, on your list of key tips, that would go into my key tips now, I think. You are buying time with your value. Yes, it's the best chapter in the book, I think. You're buying face time. And the more value you deliver, the the greater the amount of face time the customer will give you in a call or face-to-face or generally in the, I think, or generally in the process. Just generally in life. Yeah, generally in the process. Generally in life, Johnny, there's some people who knock on your door. Some people knock on my door and I think, oh, Whereas there's some people knocking on the door think, oh, this is great. I'm going to get something out of this. And then you give them more time. Anyway, chapter seven. And then seven, chapter seven, on. I really didn't like. <laughs> so, um, so it's called being the seller your customers need. And I'll tell you my issue is he starts getting into sort of different types of sales people. And, and you know, it's going to come back to a bugbear that you listeners have heard from me repeatedly. Um, 
he, he says, if you think hunter, closer, extroverted, or aggressive best describes your sales type, you should ask yourself another important question. Which of those static traits specifically speak to helping customers make purchase decisions? Any of them? Of course not. So he, he talks about hunter. Are you stalking prey that doesn't even know it's being hunted? And you just he, don't like this old fashioned. He refers to them as old standards of what a salesperson should be. Um, and I get that. But actually, good ones are hunters. Good hunters will look at themselves. I tell you, your hunters. problem with that, your problem is he's attacking something that, exists, that has existed for a long time. Yeah. He's attacking a stereotype, isn't he? Yes, he is. And I can understand why he would attack that stereotype. And as we found with a lot of these books, they're written for people. Often they're written for an audience that is a nervous and sometimes recalcitrant salesman. Yes. Page 32, um, he talks about four characteristics. He says something here. I don't know whether this is in context or out of context, but we go on to it later on, actually, which is, he says, responsive. The first seller with the answers wins. Now, I've got to tell you, in a B2C environment, that is true. When I want to buy something, if it's like a big... So recently, I've just completed on my mortgage. So what I did was I found four different solicitors in Leeds. I got a template. I emailed them all the same question. First one, first one past the first one. Okay. That was it. I think that works in B2C. I don't think that works in B2B. It's just a much more complex tapestry than that. And he, so. he talks about responsive, curious, empathetic problem solvers. I know a lot of hunters who are responsive, curious, empathetic problem solvers. I'm very much those. But they are hunters I and they are you. aggressive. And I hate the way he's denigrated the word aggressive. <laughs> I hate that. I know lots of salespeople who are aggressive, but they're not well, aggressive. Well, your lady you're dealing with has got this offer. She's aggressive, but she's not aggressive with people. She's lovely. But she's aggressive. She plays to win. You'd like to look after your dog, though, wouldn't you? She's not an aggressive person. No, she's a really nice person. Yeah. But she, you think she's about that aggressive. Client that, that, that client that we bill a lot out of, I'll have them recently, the sales guy, Mark, you've known him for years. He's an aggressive man. Yeah. But a lovely man. Just aggressive in his pursuit of success. Yeah. And, and I, I think sometimes people mistake think, yes. aggression with telling the truth. I think sometimes people... I think a lot of people mistake aggressive with, oh, he's pushy and he pushes. I agree. And he cajoles. Well, actually, firstly, a lot of the really good salespeople I meet are quite pushy and they win and they earn lots of money. Yes, and I they do. aren't And they aren't afraid of pushing a case and they'll push a little bit harder than the other guy. And I think we have to be very careful as a sales community to, I think we have to be very wary of completely scrapping. Well, they're like kids, aren't they? You know, people, society knocks the goodness out of kids. These books are knocking the goodness out of salespeople. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squeaky wheels often get oiled, Mike. They do. Chapter eight, simplifying your selling. Okay. I do agree with this. He goes, we've, we've missed a key point here in this chapter. Go on then. And this is the bit where I think actually he's really trying to drive, which is about the point he's making is about delivering value in the sales conversation. And, you know, he says, one, become accomplished in at least one area that helps customer make a decision. That is really, it is key. I do it doesn't matter whether you are a softly spoken, gentle type or an aggressive person. If you aren't really delivering value, and this is his point, you might as well not be in the game. I do agree with that. I think you do have, to, and he is absolutely, and a great question he asks here is, am I the type of salesperson that my customer needs? 
which I do also think is a that's gold. That, that's but do you a think nugget. your customer always knows what type of salesperson they need? No, but it's our job to know that. So no, so no. My point is, so I've walked in telling you about this client that's that's struggling. I am going to tell him the truth. Yeah. He probably doesn't with want both, anybody to with, tell him the truth. With both barrels. He probably doesn't want anybody to tell him the truth. Yeah. But actually, does he need someone to tell him the truth to get a result? Yeah, 100%. And are you being congruent by telling him the truth? 100%. But does he actually want that? Is he sat there now going, I, mean, I, emailed, I couldn't get hold of him, I emailed him and now I sat here. Is he sat thinking, the oh, truth. Great, I'm glad Mike's on with that email. You can't handle the truth. True though, isn't it? Yes. That's the truth. Yeah, anyway. it's whether they, but that's that's the bit that actually the customer pays you for. But they don't realise they pay for at. it. They don't realise they pay for it. I don't think. No, sometimes they sometimes they do. Chapter eight, simplifying your selling. Here we go. Too often I work with salespeople whose sales performance is hamstrung by the very complex sales systems and sales methodologies they employ. The system takes precedence over helping the customer make a decision. What you should also have added is the system takes precedence over the salesperson to be able to do their job. But that as a sentence, I agree. Yeah, I think we see that a lot in the commercial that. world. Definitely. With some yeah. of our bigger clients. Definitely. Where the, where the, well, often the candidates are sat there just going, it's so, process is so laborious. Every part of it is laborious. I've got to get bid resource. I've got to do blogging. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and they're sat there saying, I just want to work for a small company where I can control my own deals. Yeah, very much uh, Often so. we see that. And he has a, like almost a three-step antidote to that which i thought was really really great i wrote simple but really powerfully went point one make every single touch count what great point and it really got me thinking that about how often do you have a touch point with a customer where, at, where it's just transactional i left, when the, when left actually the for a guy this morning selling opportunity so listen you're cracking on with the candidate if you want to call me you can but don't feel like you have to he's texted you back said i'm not going to call you but fair enough but his point is, he's saying, make every touch count. Yes, yes. But well, at some point, absolute, you've got to touch the client, haven't you? At some point, you've got to make it. You've got to say, listen, I'm still here. Correct. And what he's saying is, rather than just saying, I'm still here, think, how can I add value in that interaction itself? I think you're making things up. So that client this morning, how could I add value? There's no value I could add. Other than to let him know he didn't need to call me. Maybe I added value by saying that, actually. Maybe. Because he would have called me out, out of politeness. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Or maybe, I, I see it as a slightly even bigger point than that. It's an opportunity to keep selling, driving information, creating information, delivering content, every single touch. Next bit, he says, be absolutely responsive. And this is a big key theme of the book. Um, every customer inquiry request requires a complete response in the shortest possible time. Don't let a rigid sales process put your competitive disadvantage to a responsive seller. Second place in a competitive sales race is no place, place to be. And clarify your offer which is so simple. If you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Which is really... It's true. I thought that was very simple, but very elegant, actually. Chapter nine, I can see that you circled the same bit as me on page 39, so we'll come to that. Because actually on page 38... Go on. I thought there was a lovely question. He says, what information does the customer need from me right now in order to take at least one step forward in the decision-making process? Little gem, that. I think so, because I'm going to knock the fact that he's just talking about giving the clients information. You can't change the client's attitude or you can't change the buying process. He says that a lot. On, you know, we've been very critical of that. But actually right here he's saying, he's saying, if I'm giving them information, what information do I need to give them to move along a piece? At least he's congruent in his giving of information. However, on the next page, you'll have underlined the same bit. Your customers make up their minds about which seller they go, 
they're going to buy from fairly early, fairly early on in their buying process. And you can't influence it. This it's happens like, long before they place an order. It's a big thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, huge. Then. And actually, it's a big thing to say to a salesperson. It's not to say that customers have made an irrevocable decision to purchase from particular suppliers, but they've developed a strong preference based on their perceptions. That's true. You know, often it's, um, they say people make a decision and then spend the rest of the process self-justifying, don't they? Yes, I have heard that. Yeah. So I get that. Um, yeah, I get it. And then he says, uh, he talks about having won a sale versus won a deal. Doesn't he? So he's saying you can be ahead of the, of the deal, but you know, might not necessarily own it. And then we're into part two. This is a big part for me, actually, and one I do agree with. What, part two? Yeah. What, part accelerating, two accelerating your responsiveness. your responsiveness. So the next few chapters are going to be talking about how we accelerate our responsiveness. Okay. So what have we got in chapter 10? The speed of responsiveness. And he, he gives an example of IBM having uh, brought, uh, created a rule where all inquiries... This I've got to tell you, this whole thing about responding to leads, he talks a lot in the book about responding to sales leads. Yes. I found that hard to understand. Why? Because I think you and I come from an environment where we have to fight so hard to generate leads. Oh, right. That, you're, you're surprised that people don't respond to leads. It's just blown my mind, yeah. Because he has some, I can't remember what the stat is, but the stat's a mega stat about how many... We'll go through it, I mean, sure. we've ha I've had some experience of dealing with some vendors for our own business where I have thought, wow. So for those listening and watching us in the dungeon, he, he comes up, I don't know if the it's in this dungeon. chapter or another, but he comes up with a stat about how few new business sales leads are called how quickly. And I just, like Jonathan said, it, was, it amazed me. I mean, it's got to be right. Yeah, and, and his, he has this formula, responsiveness equals information plus speed. And he's saying the very process of discovery of helping a prospect define their requirements, providing data and information in response to their questions, forces them to reassess needs, redefine criteria that they use in evaluating. And he, he talks about the, the ability to respond rapidly, provide information and educate the customer, which is really bang on. Um, and then it's a short chapter that, but it's a precursor to a lot of other conversations he has later on in the book yes. about being responsive. What this, do you make of his new sales funnel? Honestly, I have not written one comment on this particular chapter. Uh, so, e either I was very tired when I read it or it just didn't. So a few things about it. Then he talked about sales funnel, which is good. I think he says that we enter in, that buyers enter in lower down the sales funnel. Which most of the authors we're working with and have worked with have said the same thing. Yes, they have. Now, I don't know if it's this chapter or another, but it talks about not working your sales funnel in the way that we would. Yeah. It talks about qualifying out much more heavily. Can't be this chapter because I would have written a note about it. Yeah, okay. Let's have a look. Yeah, it talks about a lot of stuff that everybody else talks about, really, in terms of everybody's pre-educated before they get into the funnel. Yeah, and then back on the concept of responsiveness, he starts talking about how... What chapter are you on now? This chapter is chapter 12. 12, about how IBM had a responsiveness issue. Um, da, 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 they had some of them deploy some of those complex IT systems in the world but they were failing to be quick on leads. And I did write, I think that this is, this is an issue is a bit dated. And I'll tell you why I think it's a bit dated. Maybe that's because you and I are dealing with and are, have created very responsive technologies. So for example, we have a... I know, but that is... We have, we have live chat on our website. And, you know, a good example is there was a fellow on our website the other day um, 
my gadgets connected to LinkedIn. I could see who he was and I, and I just thought, I'm jumping into this. Yeah, yeah. And I actually said, hi, this is Johnny. You're on live chat. Is there anything I can help you with? And actually he became a new candidate and I've got him out to interviews. Next I think week. he's more referring to incoming leads, isn't he? But that was, but that's the point. That's an incoming lead, wasn't it? No, no, no. And but I think, I think he's talking about a time pre-live chat on internet. Yes. So it's a little bit dated, isn't it? Before, yeah, yeah. before you could use stuff like Drift and other chat technology and before the era of what I think a lot of people are referring to as conversational marketing, which could be actually quite an interesting book for us to do on the show by David Cancel, which I did read. And I, I, he would almost certainly, I think, come on as a guest. Um, okay. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm used to some very unresponsive suppliers. Salesforce are terrible. Was LinkedIn? <laughs> LinkedIn, disgraceful. Very arrogant LinkedIn, I think. That's the point, arrogant. Yeah, yeah. Market leading position. A ridiculously unbeatable market leading yeah, position. Yeah, well, monop monopolistic market leading position. There, there isn't another player in town. So as a result, they're an incredibly arrogant company. And they yeah. don't realise quite how arrogant they are and how unresponsive they, they are. No, Salesforce is the same. Because some person reading the top line number going, okay. yeah, so sales gone up this month, great. Must be doing yeah, great. Sales, well, everybody sat there cashing in on their stock options, aren't they? Yeah. Salesforce are exactly the same. Arrogant. I don't deal with them as a supplier. Oh, actually. it's the most arrogant supplier. The, the thought, literally, I, I hit our account manager from Salesforce with a bit of an objection the other day about our renewal. Literally, you'd have thought I'd shot the lad. <laughs> I, I think, it, I, don't, I, I reckon whereas, it's the first objection anybody's hit him with in his career. Whereas we've got the, uh, one of the, uh, Supplies we use for some of our sexier stuff, that company from Israel. How get the impression, fast are they? Yeah, amazing. Because they're hungry and that. So I sent her, the, our account manager, the most ridiculously pathetic question <laughs> that she must have just laughed at, but she didn't patronize me. Came back. It's a hunger thing. It's a hunger thing. Yeah, yeah. Responsiveness, and he's missed the point here. Being responsive to a customer is it's a it's a question of how bad do you want it. Everybody wants to be wanted. Us. Everybody else. And, what, and let's get it right. You end up in a big business like LinkedIn, Salesforce, some enterprise software environment. Ugh, yeah. I'll do that in an hour when I've filled in my XYZ report. <laughs> Chapter 13. <laughs> the power of first perception. And the lawsuits came trickling in. <laughs> it's funny, you know, we made some comment about Tableau software the other week. I can't remember mentioning it. One of the sales guys from Tableau dropped me an out on LinkedIn. He went, for the record, Mike, Tableau software does work. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> anyway, chapter 13, the power of first perception. I can't remember what this is about. First impressions. He's basically saying, make a good first impression. Yeah, he is actually absolutely right. You know, um, I wrote here, you have to consciously maximise the value and impact of your first impression. And he talks a lot about the speed of your first impression. How quick are you? Um, and I wrote, does speed always win? Can it No, be? but that's not his formula in fairness to him. He's saying responsiveness equals speed plus information. Yes. But I, and I'm just asking you the question, can speed sometimes be needy? Oh, can speed... Uh, that's a good question. I don't think... You know, sometimes, right? You know, sometimes you deal with maybe a candidate or sometimes even a client that's really struggling to fill a job and they pick up on the first ring. I don't have a problem with that at all. Maybe that's them being responsive. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I'm the same, actually. Guy phoned me this morning, guy that's recruiting in Scotland, you know him. Um, 
He called me. It was very early. Or maybe, yeah, okay. It was very early when he called me. It was like 10 past seven. And I went, oh, I know. Hello. He went, I'm surprised you answered. I was going to leave your voicemail. I said, well, my phone's here. You rang. Yeah, I'm sat at my desk. He said, it's 10 past seven. I said, I know, but I'm sat at my desk. So what? What do you want? And actually, you know, I think that will have done us some good. But I know what you mean about being needy. It's different though in the B2C environment. Because when you walk into the BMW showroom... You don't want the salesman right up your tube straight away, do you? Because it's needy. And it feels needy. Exactly. Anyway. But there's an art to that, isn't there? The good ones come up to you and say, hi, listen, I'm not going to crowd you. Have a look around. I'm right over here. As soon when I bought the BMW... But a, good, but a good one would say, as soon as you want to talk about anything, please come over and talk to me. No, I had a better one than that. So we walked in. You walk in the BMW showroom in Leeds. The counter's on your right-hand side the minute you walk in. I walked in, wife and kids... This guy was literally on me. I mean, we were only just through the door. He went, oh, cracky. Sorry, I was just walking past, didn't see you there. Anyway. Last, last day of the month, was it? Yeah, exactly. He went, anyway, what do you want? Now, that was smart. Because he went, oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. I was just rushing past. Sorry, I've just, in fact, no. What do you want? How can I help you? That was smart. He'd yeah. lurking behind the door. But actually, he made it like, oh, he just bumped into you. My wife thought it was great. And in fact, it's bought a car for him. Fair play. I like the phrase he's written here. You don't, uh, where he talks about conditioning customers to expect complete responsiveness. And I, I'm a big fan of conditioning customers and using little conditioning techniques. I, I always used to say, sometimes you've got to teach a customer like a little doggy. I'm not. You see, I just don't agree with that. I will answer my customer's call as quickly as I possibly can. Every Fair time. play. Every time. Answering my candidates. So recently I made a call from a phone box. You saw it on LinkedIn. That was hilarious. Yeah, exactly. And actually the client that's who was responsiveness, that's the point he's making. The client who was struggling this morning, it was for him. And he, and he said to me, when I, when I called him from a phone box, he said, yeah, but Mike, you know the candidate's unsuccessful. You already know that. I said, I don't care. The candidate needs his feedback because yeah. he's been three interviews with you and he needs and it today. it's the right thing to do. And I called the candidate. Do you know how much I spent in my phone box? You said it was about 20 quid or something. 21 pounds. Was it just eating pound coins? Well, I started putting pounds in it. I had to put my card in it. I thought I'm going to run out. <laughs> anyway, so... And, and then he talks... And what his point is, and I think this is a key point, is about perception and speed and responsiveness is that people do extrapolate. Yes, I did agree with that. Whether that's consciously or subconsciously, there's an extrapolation effect that is, Christ, this guy's on top of it. Christ, this guy's good. Maybe his service is good. Maybe the product's good. Maybe the company's good. Well, you are a representative, aren't you? It's of course you are. Title. You are a sales representative. It's in your job title. Yeah, absolutely. So, funny, Mike, because when I was finishing the book on it over the weekend, I was wondering, well, what are we going to talk about in this book? But we've been... Let's race through it a bit. <laughs> but actually, we've had a lot to talk about, and there's a lot we haven't talked about in the first few chapters, which is often the case of some really interesting stuff. Uh, and that is the end of the first episode of uh, this four-part season of Amp Up Your Sales. Thank you very much. Goodbye.